I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Some 2,000 Turkish citizens have crossed the border into Syria to join jihadist forces in the country's eight-year-long war. But now that Islamic State's caliphate has collapsed, many want to come back. The whole region is struggling with its expat extremists. And burgers are big in Budapest. Pasta is popular in Pretoria. They chow down on chow mein in Charleston. But if you add it all up, what's the culinary balance of trade? Which country exports its cuisine the most and imports foreign fare the least? But first... There are almost 11 million undocumented people living in America. President Donald Trump's administration has adopted a series of policies designed to discourage people from attempting to enter America, including the separation of families arriving at the southern border. On August 21st, the administration unveiled plans that would allow the indefinite detention of undocumented families, including children who cross the border illegally. But the greatest betrayal committed by the Democrats is their support for open borders. And these open borders would overwhelm schools and hospitals, drain public services, and flood communities with poisonous drugs. He's also pursued policies aimed at removing undocumented workers that are already in the country. Over the past year, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, has conducted several large raids on workplaces, detaining hundreds of people at a time. Those raids have ramped up in recent weeks. They've had a heavy impact on immigrant communities and the industries that depend on their labor. There are about six little towns sort of in a crescent around Jackson, Mississippi, and central Mississippi, where a lot of Guatemalan, Salvadoran, Central American, and Mexican immigrants have settled largely to work in poultry processing plants in that area. John Fasman is The Economist's Washington correspondent. He went to report on the impact of ICE's recent operations. And so for this story, I went to Morton, Mississippi, which is quite a small town about 40 minutes east of Jackson. It is fairly heavily Latino, but it's a, it's a very quiet community. A lot of the people who are living there don't have working papers. So you don't see, or at least I didn't see, the sort of vibrancy you might see in a heavily and long-standing immigrant community. It's really quite a quiet, modest town. And I went there to assess the impact of the immigration raids on the families who live in that region. Tell me a bit more about those raids. On August 7th, ICE 
agents raided seven poultry processing plants in that area, and they detained around 680 people, of whom 377, when last I checked, are still in detention. And many of those released afterward got fired. I think the companies got quite nervous about employing undocumented people now that the now that the government's eye was on them. So the young man who I spent the most time talking to, he was 16, he went to school during the day and worked afternoon and evening shifts at the plant. His parents worked at the plant. They've all been fired. So the whole family went from having, having three jobs to having no jobs. So you say this was uh, an, uh, certainly a large raid. I mean, is it, is it an unusual one beyond its size? Well, these raids, workplace raids, had sort of fallen out of favor under the Obama administration. Um, they turned away, the Obama administration spent, they focused their police forces on, on finding undocumented criminal immigrants, particularly violent criminal immigrants. And they used the bureaucracy to focus mostly on employers rather than employees. So they did, instead of large-scale raids of undocumented immigrant working people, they focused on the employers who, who, who hired them to work in the first place. Under President Trump, these raids have come back. Why, though? Why, why is that what this administration wants to do? Well, if you want to deport a certain number of undocumented immigrants, then you have to have a way to, to find them. And so for a long time, that way was local police. Undocumented people would get arrested or pulled over. The police would ask for their immigration status. And if they were undocumented, then they would detain them until ICE came to pick them up. That practice has slowed down a lot of jurisdictions. Most of the major cities where most of America's undocumented population live have sanctuary policies. What a sanctuary policy means essentially is that local police will not enforce immigration policies. That means they won't detain people who have committed no crime, who have just been pulled over. They won't detain people until ICE gets there to throw them out. Obviously, if someone has actually committed a crime, a real violent crime, then they'll be held and ICE will come get them. But people who have done nothing other than violate immigration law, local police will not act as immigration police in enforcing them yet. And the argument you hear from local police captains is that this is largely a public safety measure, that they want to keep their communities safe. And to do that, undocumented people have to feel comfortable about coming in to talk to them about crimes in their communities without worrying that the police are going to turn them over to, to immigration authorities. And so that source of finding undocumented immigrants has, has largely dried up. And so workplace raids give federal authorities a way of finding lots of undocumented people in one place. And so that is what, that's what they've done. And so when these kinds of workplace raids were in favor in past administrations, that was the rationale, that it was just basically an, an easy way to get a lot of people at once? Well, no, that's not the case. It's interesting. So the Postville raid, which was the last big raid at the end of the George W. Bush administration, in that case, it was done to send a signal to congressional Republicans who were dragging their feet in agreeing to comprehensive immigration reform. It was the Bush administration's way of saying, look, if you don't agree to sort of a sane policy here, this is what enforcement is going to look like. And it's going to be militaristic. It's going to be big. There are going to be these images of riot gear, police carting away, just ordinary working people. Do you have the stomach for that? And was made to sort of to sort of frighten Republicans into supporting immigration reform. These seem like an anti-immigrant president sending a signal to his base that he's doing something to round people up and get them out of the country. But the signal that the president has sent has always been tied up with uh, violent immigrants, criminal elements. It doesn't seem that people working in chicken processing are, are the first group you'd target if you wanted to crack down on the criminal community. Well, I think that's not quite right. Certainly there has been a lot of rhetoric about undocumented criminal immigrants. But 
build the wall is not to keep out criminals, it's to keep everybody out. And in the view of many people on the right, the mere fact that someone is here without working papers is itself a crime and does itself justify deportation. Tom Homan, the former head of ICE, said that they were, at the beginning of the Trump administration, that everybody was a priority. Now, that sounds tough, but it doesn't make an enormous amount of sense because the more time you spend on raiding workplaces that are home to just ordinary working people, the less time you could spend going after really dangerous criminals. And I think that's why the number of undocumented criminals is down during the Trump administration compared to the previous administration. And so if the in the past the, the raids were uh, essentially to, to sort of chivy along some some legislation, this time it's supposed to be, well, essentially, essentially deterring migrants from coming at all? Is that the idea? I think that is ultimately the idea, that they view this as a form of deterrence. Uh, I think that's, that's not a sensible rationale. I think it doesn't make sense to think that if you are a young mother in El Salvador whose family is, is menaced by gangs in your neighborhood, that you're going to weigh the possibility of being caught in a raid on a workplace in Mississippi or Ohio or wherever they're raiding into your decision whether or not to leave. I mean, family separations didn't really deter people from coming north. Uh, it's hard to imagine this will either. And in the town where you were, Morton, how were people dealing with the aftermath of this, this huge raid? Well, the immigrant community is frightened, as you can imagine. I was there on a sunny summer afternoon and the streets were completely deserted. People weren't out on the streets at all. Um, I talked to a priest who had done some food deliveries in the neighborhood, and he said that when he comes to people's doors with baskets of donated food, it's very hard to get people to open it because they think he might be ICE. I talked to another priest who said that people from his parish are, are leaving, that they're not gonna risk their undocumented people who have been working here, but who are going to go to another state. There's also concern in the business community there. I mean, poultry processing is, is big business in Mississippi. They were already having trouble finding workers. And so this is going to make it even harder for them to, for them to operate. They worry that if these large-scale raids become a common feature of the landscape, then they're going to have a hard time finding people to pick the crops and get food to Americans in, in supermarkets. So there's really concern among everyone in this community. John, thanks very much for joining us. Anytime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For the past eight years, the Syrian war has boiled away along Turkey's southern border. Over that time, the conflict attracted a steady stream of Turkish people who went to join the extremists of the Islamic State, influenced by the group's propaganda and success. But since the caliphate collapsed, some of the fighters have been imprisoned. Others have returned home. Now, Turkey must figure out what to do with them. And for the loved ones of jihadists, there's still a painful aftermath. I went to visit a family in a conservative neighborhood in Istanbul. And these were the mother and father of six adult children. 
Piotr Zalewski reports from Turkey for The Economist. And uh, let's refer to them by the names they asked me to use, Suheyla and Lutfu. Both are in their 50s, and they told me about a fateful day which took place about four years ago when Suheyla was making dinner for her children. Like I said, they had six children. She invited all of them um, to dinner. Five of them did not come home. And what had happened to them? Well, Suheyla and Lutfu had noticed that their children had changed, had transformed almost overnight. The daughters had been wearing a traditional Turkish headscarf, and suddenly they began wearing the niqab, which is the veil that covers the, the entire face. And the, their son began growing a beard. The five children also began talking about joining Islamic State. Parents were extremely worried, and they actually threatened to go to the police, at which point the kids said, well, we've given up. Except that they didn't, and the night that Suheyla had invited them for dinner was the night they decided to uh, run off to Syria and to smuggle themselves into Syria. And Suheyla and Lutfu did what they said they wanted to do, which is they ran to the police, they informed the counterterrorism branch to no avail. A month later, one of the daughters called Suheyla and told her that the five of them, four daughters, one son, plus the son's wife and their infant child had smuggled themselves into Syria and had joined Islamic State. And so what happened to them once, once they, they crossed the border? Well, they were first based in Syria, and then, like many Turkish jihadis who had joined ISIS, they were moved to Talafar, which is a town on the Iraqi side of the border, so in Iraq, close to the border with Syria. And that town, I believe in 2017, was captured by Iraqi and Kurdish Peshmerga forces. The four daughters were captured. The son, no one knows, either managed to escape or was killed in combat, but the four daughters were then transported to a camp in Iraq and later on to a prison in Baghdad. And it was in that prison that one of those daughters had a child, and it was in that same prison that that daughter died two months after uh, delivering her, her child. And another of the daughters had had a child before that, uh, who also lived alongside her in uh, the Baghdad prison. And so what happened to two little children that, that had been, been imprisoned or born in prison? Those two children were repatriated to Turkey earlier this year, alongside about 200 other Turkish children of Turkish jihadis, and they were united with their grandparents, i.e. Suheyla and Lutfu. And uh, when I met uh, Suheyla and Lutfu, their grandchildren were with them, and they were doing fine, or at least better than was the case when they first arrived in Turkey. And so how common are stories like that? How many Turkish people have given up their relatively safe, stable lives to, to, go, to go join Islamic State? 2,000 Turks joined Islamic State or uh, jihadi groups in Syria, including al-Qaeda. Hundreds of Turks who joined uh, IS or al-Qaeda were killed in the fighting. Hundreds are in custody, having been picked up by Turkish security forces. At this point, the biggest concern for Turkey and for Turkish security forces is those militants who may have slipped through the cracks, meaning people who have returned from Syria, uh, from Iraq, 
and have managed to slip under the radar. And so what is Turkey doing about the, this challenge of, of the people who have slipped through the net? Well, the challenge is broader. There are people in custody, there are people um, who may want to attempt to cross back into Turkey. And Turkey is taken a number of measures. The most tangible is the border wall being built between Turkey and Syria. Turkey also launched an operation, a military operation, late 2016. So IS, as of 2016, no longer had any territory adjacent to Turkey. And then there's a host of measures that Turkey has begun to take quite belatedly, let's say, regarding prevention and de-radicalization. But what can they do about radicalization after the fact? The Turkish religious directorate, which is responsible for the teaching of Islam in uh, Turkish mosques, has trained 70 prison chaplains to deal um, specifically with religious extremists. And those prison chaplains, I guess, go and try to speak to IS supporters to set them on the straight path. I've heard at least one case where a, a female prison chaplain persuaded two women IS supporters, two siblings, two sisters, who to recant, and those sisters were later uh, released from custody. But you say that there are plenty of, of foreign jihadis being held in Turkey and indeed Turkish citizens being held in, in foreign prisons. This is sort of inherently an international problem for, for, for Turkey. It is, and it's a problem for foreign countries as well. There are 700, 800 foreign IS militants, supporters in Turkish prison. In addition to that, there are 775 suspected foreign IS supporters in Turkish deportation centers. Now that's where the situation gets quite tricky because these are people that Turkey is in no position to prosecute because there is not enough evidence. Now, foreign countries are not terribly eager to take those foreign fighters back. So the complaint that I heard from Turkish officials was that foreign consulates, foreign embassies are deliberately dragging their feet when it comes to providing these um, suspected foreign fighters with travel documents. So as with a lot of countries whose citizens have gone to fight with IS, essentially Turkey doesn't want its own militants back, it, uh, and you know, and other countries don't want theirs back. This looks like a stalemate. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a hot potato issue where uh, you know, foreign countries uh, do not want to take back their own IS militants. Turkey would like them to go back, but at the same time, Turkey doesn't seem terribly eager to take back its own militants. The family that I spoke to would love for the Turkish government to apply the same logic to its own citizens, i.e., their three surviving daughters. And they say that whatever you want to do, sentence them to life, sentence them to death, but do so in Turkey. They belong in Turkey. Piotr, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. policy isn't just nuclear deals and aid packages. Countries also care about whether or not you eat their food. In 2012, America's State Department launched a chef corps tasked with promoting American food abroad. The Thai government sends cooks overseas with its global Thai program. And South Korea has what it calls kimchi diplomacy. But how to measure which countries have made their local dishes international favorites? 
There's a new paper by Joel Wolfogel, an economist at the University of Minnesota, and it estimates trade in cuisines of different countries around the world. Bo Franklin is The Economist's assistant news editor. So if you think of traditional trade measured based on the values of goods and services that go in and out of countries, this one takes the same approach but considers the type of food that different countries like to enjoy. So how, how do you even calculate that kind of trade? Well, the paper uses restaurant listings from TripAdvisor and sales figures from Euromonitor, a market research firm, and it takes domestic consumption of foreign food as an import, whereas foreign consumption of domestic cuisine is treated as an export. So, for example, if you look at the case of Britain, domestic consumption of foreign food, something like eating a croque monsieur in Margate, would be considered as an import, and foreign consumption of Britain's domestic cuisine, like enjoying some fish and chips in the middle of Paris, that would be considered as an export. And that effective balance of trade determines which countries have an outside influence on the rest of the world's palate. And so how did it come out? Well, if you think about trade in the same terms as Donald Trump seems to, where he sees importing more than you export as being an inherently bad thing, then things don't look particularly good for American cuisine. The US is by far and away the world's biggest net importer of other countries' cuisines. Americans ate $55 billion more in foreign dishes than the rest of the world ate in American fare in 2017. And when fast food's included, that balloons to $134 billion. So America got to claim fast food entirely for its own, did it? Pretty much, yep. And then Brazil and Britain don't fare particularly well either. And so who is then, in that case, the, the biggest exporter? Well, Italy, possibly unsurprisingly again, is the biggest net exporter of dishes. It has $168 billion effective surplus, and that's probably because people around the world love eating pizza and pasta. But also the fact that Italians are relatively indifferent to other countries' food also figures in that. Okay, so far not hugely surprising in that there is not kind of a genuine national American cuisine beyond perhaps fast food, and certainly everybody does love pizza and pasta. Any surprises? Well... India came out as quite a big surprise. India had a deficit, even though the rest of the world seems to absolutely love Indian food. And that's because while India is the fifth biggest gross exporter of cuisine, Indians love other nations' dishes too and import just as much as they export. I mean, the study seems to be taking a fairly clean cut of what is a, uh, a foreign food and a, a domestic food and so on. I mean, like, yes. uh, I'm a fan, for instance, of a California roll. Now, is that, is that an American dish or is that a Japanese dish? It's kind of neither, right? Well, this is where the study starts to fall apart a little bit. It's a fun way to look at how the world eats, but it's not perfect. If you think about fusion food, something like Tex-Mex, that doesn't really fit anywhere because you can't attribute it to the US or Mexico, really. So that wouldn't figure at all. And then authenticity is another thing you have to consider. Even though pizza originated in Italy, so counts for Italy's figures, it's unlikely that many Neapolitans would look at a Domino's Hawaiian pizza and say, that's a taste of home. So is this, this balance of trade calculation really the way to, to think about this, to measure which, which countries' foods are the most beloved? Well, I don't think we should really be looking at having a culinary trade deficit as a bad thing. If a country exports a lot of dishes but also likes to eat dishes from other countries, that could just mean that people there have a really sophisticated palate and people love what they cook. And if national cuisine does end up becoming another front in the trade war, a kind of zero-yum game, it would definitely make for some very dull dinners. Thanks very much for coming in, Bo. Thanks, Jason.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.